Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Hi, and a pleasant good day to everybody. Welcome to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr along with the Wizard of Water Hydrology, Mr. Chris Davey. Chris, how are you today? Great. Thank you, Rob. Hope you're doing the same out there in the great state of Arizona. Yeah. Well, we got a special guest on today who's been a friend of us for a couple of years. Uh, he's, uh, we'll go into his biography and everything in a minute. But he's traveled the world, and you'll hear a little bit uh, what, what his uh, specialties are. Very unique person, and uh, we're going to go right to him today. So uh, our first guest is a gentleman called Seth Siegel. So uh, here we go. Well, we're lucky to have a gentleman who's been on our show a couple times before, and I'm very happy that I've met him in person a few times. And uh, this guy's amazing. His name is Seth Siegel. He's an American businessman, writer, activist. He's the author of a bestseller, uh, New York Times, called Let There Be uh, Water. I uh, also had a second book that he had read that's called Troubled Water, What's Wrong With What We Drink. Um, He's also founded and co-founded several companies, including the Beanstalk Group and Six Point Partners. Additionally, Mr. Siegel has produced shows for Broadway and television, and his essays and articles have appeared in publications including New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, and many others. Uh, I'm amazed that all the things he can do when I grow up, I want to be just like him. <laughs> and uh, so I appreciate it. So I want to welcome to the show again, Mr. Seth Siegel. Seth, how are you, sir? Rob, it's great to see you again, and uh, I've, I've been fine. I've been great. You know, uh, I, I think on the personal level, everything's been wonderful. On the on the global level, like a lot of people, I lay in bed at night wondering, what? How did we get to this point? But uh, ho- hopefully, we'll muddle through. You know, growing growing up, um, I, I didn't think the world's going to turn the way it is, and everything's changed. You know, one one thing happens, and another thing gets happened, and it gets scary. But one one question, just to ask you, I've never asked you this. What made you go into the water industry and talk about water? What what drew you to that? You know, I'm not an engineer or a scientist, but I've been interested in water as a policy matter since I've been a high schooler, believe it or not. And I never acted on it. And then after a wonderful and successful business career, uh, I sold a company that, that I built from scratch with a partner t- into a global enterprise. And I sold it, uh, as I said, still at a fairly young age to Ford Motor Company. And it was a kind of an exit that allowed me to make whatever choice I wanted with my life. You know, did I want to spend the rest of my life golfing or did I want to spend the rest of my life doing something else or start more businesses? And I decided I wanted to really throw myself into public service. So uh, not to run for office, uh, but to to try to f- uh, help with some big problems. And I, I worked on a variety of areas, including some Middle East issues and realize that water scarcity has the potential to be the single most disruptive matter in our lives since at least the end of World War II when we had mass population transfers and huge refugee flows. And I thought that if we don't get right on water scarcity issues, that we're going to find ourselves in a very disrupted world. Uh, Food prices rising, national security issues becoming a concern in a way they aren't even now, and that the world would be in a different place than it is now. But on the other hand, as I'm fond of saying, water problems are nice in that they give you a lot of lead time and that you have the opportunity to get smart about solving water problems um, uh, if you if you approach them with enough 
uh, vision and enough budget and enough focus early on. And I felt like, well, we're not there yet with the crisis period. And if we could jump into this and if I could play my part in raising awareness, I'd like to do that. So I've been ringing the bell pretty loudly now for quite a number of years. Let There Be Water was a Cinderella type surprise for me. I thought it would be a book that would sell about 500 copies, but here it is many years later. It's still in print. It's out in 25 languages. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I know that um, I, I know from the request for speeches that I get almost every week that it's still is a con- not only a concerning area, but maybe a greater concerning area than ever before. So um, so uh, my my early gut instinct that water is an important issue and my instinct about 20 years ago that water scarcity would be a significant issue has proven to be exactly the case. So what have you been following recently? I know you've, you travel back and forth in many places, especially Israel, and kind of gives an update of what you see and hear and, and how you view water throughout the country and in the world. Well, the, the, the biggest problem, I think, is that I'll talk about Israel in a moment. I think the biggest problem is that we are, have not adequately adapted our water use in a key area, and that is agriculture. And although we have spoken in the past about urban water and water quality and other things of that sort, and I've always enjoyed being on your show, um, what I really think is that if we don't fix if we don't fix the agriculture use of water, and not just in the developing world, but also in, in, in more advanced societies, including the U.S., that we're going to find ourselves in a period of scarcity and disruption that uh, that we're really not going to be very happy about. Now, very w- wealthy countries like the U.S., like Canada, like Germany, France, and so forth. Uh, the advanced world can, the financially advanced world, can buy their way out of problems in the main. If food prices rise, you know, there'll be some unhappiness from voters, but but they'll figure out a way to buy the buy produce in different parts from different parts of the world. Or if if they need to cut back on farming, you know, they'll figure out a way to pay farmers off. I mean, so that it's not such a radically grave problem in the United States directly like that. But if we don't fix water scarcity problems. What's, what we're going to see is uh, places that are less developed. And and I know right now, uh, I don't know when this will be airing, but I know that as of this very moment, you know, on our U.S.'s southern border, there's nothing but crisis from all the number of, of uh, immigrants who are trying to get across the border. Well, think of, imagine that that number is tenfold or a hundredfold. And that's not impossible to imagine. Because if South America and Latin America don't get their water story right, it doesn't matter if we can buy our way out of the cost of blueberries in the United States. We're going to be facing a a vast, vast number of people who are wanting to move from where the water has given out to where the water has not given out. So as a world leader here in America, we do need to fix our own water. And I'll get into that in a few minutes. But we we really just as much need to play a leadership role in getting the world to think about their water intelligently. Now, if I could just go on for another minute or so, um, the the reality is, is that, as I said earlier, is agriculture is where the, where the game has to be played. Agriculture globally eats about 70 to 75 percent of the fresh water uh, around the world. Certainly, that's the same in the United States. And we find ourselves in a situation where um, because of climate change, and because of growing population, there's less water available for agriculture. And also, we need to grow more food and fiber for a growing world. And so if we are about 8 billion people globally right now, the guess is that in the next 25 to 30 years, 
we're going to be somewhere around 10 billion people. So that's that's a pretty significant increase in mouths to feed, showers to be had, and toilets to be flushed, and so forth. So there's a lot that has to be done in those intervening 20, 25 years to get ready for that for those new arrivals. Um, in terms of the Israel piece, which you asked about, and I'll pause after this, Israel has long been a global center of water innovation. And I know we had a chance to talk about that my very first time on your show. Um, it's something, I'm an American, I've lived in New York my whole life, uh, but it's something that when you go to Israel and visit there, it's something to behold. Israel is a country that is only about 9 million odd people right now, maybe getting close to 10 million people. It's only the size of the state of New Jersey in terms of land mass. Uh, Two thirds of that is desert. People are clustered pretty much in a coastal plain, most of the country population wise. And yet they have figured out a way to build their economy in a problem solving way. And startups in all areas of, of, of tech, medical areas, medical devices, uh, cyber technology, computers, uh, and agriculture are, and not just those, I mean, in many, many dozens of other categories, wherever there seems to be a problem, Israelis have this can-do attitude of how do we make this better? And there's hundreds of Israeli startups in, the, in one aspect of water or another. And I've gotten, perhaps we can explore this later, I've gotten deeply involved with one of those uh, startups, which I think has the the magical solution for a change the world uh, device. So talking about Israel for a little bit more, I understand maybe there's a little there's a bit of a, a personal connection for you in the recent events that have happened um, over there. What sort of impact has that had on on uh, uh, your life? Well, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, look, I'm an American. I'm not an Israeli. But um, I have, I'm Jewish. Uh, I have, I've been in Israel many times as a visitor. I have many friends there. I have, um, I have a daughter who teaches at Tel Aviv University. Uh, and I have two grandchildren who live there. Uh, my son-in-law is Israeli born. Um, and uh, I fear for, I, I fear for their safety uh, in a world in which uh, there's a new power realignment uh, with Iran doing all kinds of malign acts uh, throughout the region. Uh, so it's something that I, I would be lying if I would say that I don't get up every single day thinking about you know, what's going on over there. Now, the current conflict that's going on um, is something that uh, is, is, is just horrifying to think about. I, I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I'm not an Israeli, but as a human being, can you just imagine uh, some thousands of people breaking through a, a, an international border and coming with the purpose of murdering and raping and robbing and and not just murdering, murdering in the most grotesque ways, you know, burning babies alive, slitting pregnant women's bellies open, uh, decapitating people uh, and, and, who, and who and why? I mean, these are not combatants of any kind. There were elderly people. There were, as I said, children and babies, whole families. Uh, in all, about 1,200 people were murdered in a matter of a few hours by this uh, rampage. And uh, and so because I have been so worried, and not just because I have a daughter who lives there, she lives many miles away from where the, all that happened, but because of the fact that, you know, I just think about where is society and civilization going? How can you not worry about a situation in which that kind of brutality, that kind of bestial behavior isn't universally condemned? And so, Chris, if I might say, I'm almost equally disturbed 
by um, by the reaction of many what you might call elites to that attack. Whereas you would think that this is as basic as, as you know, how could anybody be in favor of this to see demonstrations where people waving the Hamas flag and, and chanting in support of Hamas is something that is, is frankly is disorienting. I, 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 I you know, here we are about 125 days from the attack and and I still can't figure out how it is that anybody could could be applauding that or excusing it or denying it. Uh, so, um, so you've really touched a nerve for me in terms of that. Um, all the more so because I, I, I've, as you mentioned, I've been back and forth Israel many, many, many times, and um, I have long believed that you know there's 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 a relatively easy way of solving this politically if the and I don't want to just put it on one side, but if only. Uh, there could be a recognition that this is a place that uh, Israel will have a state when all is said and done. I mean, it's the, it's. I fear it's the rejectionists on the radical, radical Islamic side and the radical Arab side that are sabotaging this. Now, which I, I hasten to add, I don't want to for a second suggest that there aren't people whose politics I strongly disagree with within Israel. And people who are who are you know ultra nationalist right wingers who I d- d- disagree with deeply, but but I hasten to add that just a few years ago during the Oslo negotiations, seventy five to eighty percent of the Israeli public was open to a major territorial uh, compromise and the creation of a Palestinian state, and I think it is brutality like this that sabotages that possibility at least anytime soon. You have a generation that now is so traumatized. By what happened, that how can they how can they possibly imagine having something similar uh, happening again and and with where the mass population center in the center of the country, uh, which is adjacent to the West Bank, uh, could be exposed this way. So I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours, I suspect. But but the, my reaction to the recent events has has really been tied to a, a, a shaking my head with disgust and lack of comprehension as as how a this could happen and b how anyone could be excusing it you know it's funny i i i ran on operations for my previous company uh, around the world in several countries and you know the, first of all they see an american coming and they look at me really strange and i'm giving them orders or direction what we need to do and i tried to explain to them i said you know whether we all like it or not we all came from the same place if we cut our fingers and the blood comes out Basically, we're all related to each other <laughs> in this world. And I, I have a hard time seeing people uh, who are very prejudiced or very angry about something and, and not sit down and talk and, and realize that we're all human beings. We all, I, I don't want to see any child get killed or beheaded. Uh, there's no need for any of that stuff. Uh, I know the world's you know drastically changed since I was a young guy. And uh, it scares me to death to, to think that things that can happen here in this country. We, we have a, a guest coming on, a couple of guests coming on, who is the former undersecretary of defense, uh, one of the heads, another person who was head of the cyber group for FBI. And they're going to talk about how they're worried about uh, hacking. There was, a, there was a thing that happened a couple of weeks ago in, outside in Pennsylvania where a water treatment plant got hacked by the Iranians. And, uh, you know, we all need water to live. There's not a whole lot of it left to do. We got we to gotta use it as, as best as we can. And, you know, you had told us the story how Israel supplies water to even their enemies. And, yeah. you, know, you know, when you know, if we all look at each other, and this will be the last time I talk on this, but 
I just want to see the world come to a better place and understand with all the technology and things that the whole world offers, working together, we can we can have a great world if we wanted to, but it's going to be difficult throughout the next coming years. So. You know, I'll tell you something. The other part of it is, is, is leadership in non-democratic states. I'm a great believer in democracies, and obviously we in our own democracy have had our own challenges. But when you have a democracy, the theory at least is, is that leadership can't long endure a leadership role unless they're providing the benefits to their publics. And when when the Israeli troops that recently invaded, I mean, just the last couple of days, that invaded what looks like was the stronghold of the Hamas leadership in, in Khan Yunus in Gaza, and they found these position papers or memos, or I don't know what you call it, uh, in which they identify the fact that the reason they did this grievous attack against Israel was they wanted to see a reaction from Israel and that they assumed that by Israel having no, not no choice, but inevitably in the course of warfare, killing civilians, that this would lead to, as it did, a hue and cry against Israel. This was part of the Hamas plan. They were using their own children as, as cannon fodder to make their point. I mean, it's it's almost incomprehensible as to how anyone could be in a situation where they could be in a leadership situation where they uh, encourage the, the deaths of civilians as part of their own strategy. And the worse, you know, Lenin supposedly once said, the worse it gets, the better it gets. And that's sort of that's sort of the mentality of these people, too. The more civilians who are killed, the more the more that they could point their finger at Israel and the more they could assume and they by the way and they assumed wrongly that the western countries would attack Israel and make Israel uh, pause the war they were they were wrong and i would say we're lucky about that but but middle east stuff is you know i have some expertise in this area but but uh, perhaps we could should talk about water <laughs> <laughs> no but, but it's a good perspective because you go back and forth and, and so do a lot of other yeah. people i mean yeah. our technology in our industry which we are in the irrigation business uh, a lot of technologies come from Israel and there got some great, great stuff. Um, so what, what do you see as some of the water trends that are happening in technologies and, and you know, what kind of impact are we going to have on glo- global water resources and predictions? Well, let me let me g- g- jump into the one that I'm most excited about right now, if I may. Um, it's a company that still is basically not well known, but I'll make a small prediction, OK? And I, you have me on your show every what, every every year or two or so. So I'll predict that the next time I'm on your show, if 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 I haven't overstayed my welcome, if you'll have me back, um, <laughs> is is by the next time I'm on your show a year or so from now, the company I'm about to talk about is much better known, and in two visits from now, it's a, it's a known universally. That's how that's how significant this technology is. Uh, the company is called Ndrip, like new drip and hyphen drip, and what they have done is something something on the borderline of miraculous. As you know, around the world and in the US as well, a very large percentage of all irrigation is done by flood irrigation. And not to overwhelm your listeners with numbers, I'll give a couple of numbers that will shock everybody. Excuse me, around the world, about 85% of all irrigation is done by flooding. Flood irrigation, trench irrigation, one of those techniques. That's 600 million acres around the world. And we'll talk about the US in a split second. Um, that that method, I can't even call it a technology, that method dates back several thousand years to ancient Egypt, to ancient Mesopotamia, when the, when the Nile, the Tigris, Euphrates rivers would be flooded and they would build canals 
to take water off of these big rivers and they would flood the fields with that and they would open and close the sluice gates as needed. And we've all seen the photographs, they're very dramatic always, you know, of the cracked soil and such. And that's that's an area that was generally was flooded and then it's the water is taken away and then and then the crops grow a little bit and then they flood the field again. And this is done a numerous times throughout the season. And then they finally harvest the field. This this uh, 5,000 years ago, that that technique, that method was fine because there weren't that many people. There was a lot of water. There was no real export industries. Uh, and so and so it worked. And also they didn't have the devices that we have today and the methodologies we have today to, to change that. But fast forward now to today. And now we are now we are more than eight times larger global population. We have a much more enhanced diet. Uh, we have a global export industries and um, and lo and behold, and by the way, now we have historically high temperatures for climate issues. And lo and behold, we are still in the main using flood irrigation as the form of irrigation. And that is insanity. Now, about 85 years ago, center pivot gets invented. And that's um, around the world is about 12%. In the US, it's about half of all irrigation is done by center pivot. Uh, and, um, and and that's where the big sprinkler goes round and round and round. You, you're flying US uh, across the US, you see those big circles in the field. Those are generally 120 to 120 acre plots that are, that are irrigated by this sprinkler that goes overhead. And then about 65 years ago, also in Israel, by the way, um, invented something called pressurized drip irrigation. And this was a fabulous type of irrigation because it was a great water saver. Uh, it saved about half of the water and it produced less stressed plants. So therefore there was more yield. And it was a one, it was and is a wonderful technology, but because it's very, very expensive to install and pivot is also very expensive. And because it uses a lot of energy as is pivot, it's probably not as appropriate for today as would be the kinds of technologies that if we were inventing from scratch today, we would be wanting to use, I would say it that way. Well, lo and behold, we find ourselves today with a brand new invention that makes the best of these opportunities. Uh, NDRIP takes a flood irrigated field of which there are tens of millions of such acres in the United States. And, I and to, to make the point even more precise, in the Colorado River Basin, where uh, you have over 4 million acres that are irrigated in a place by, with flood irrigation in a place that's running out of water and with Lake Mead is at risk of, of being below the red line where you can't produce hydroelectricity. You have a situation where you could transform all that by putting in NDRIP. And what does NDRIP do? It takes the slope of a flood irrigated field. So any acre, any field that is currently flood irrigated is ripe for NDRIP. And then what it does, using only and exclusively the gravity from the gravitational, from the, from the slope of the field, using that as the only energy source. So no solar, no wind, because sometimes it's not sunny, sometimes it's not windy. Using only gravity, which is always on and always sustainable. This is used to propel the water across the field and not just across the field, but two to three times longer then pressurized drip is able to do so. Now, the problem with pressurized drip today is, is that it's very expensive to install in the field. You either need to have electricity brought to the field or you need to have diesel generators. And then you need to spend hundreds of dollars an acre 
each year to propel the water across the field. Now for high value added crops, wine grapes, tree nuts, avocados, a handful of others, it makes perfect sense. But for row crops, for commodity crops, corn, wheat, rice, alfalfa, sugarcane, uh, cotton, you know, pick 30 other crops that you're familiar with, uh, lettuce and so forth, onions, artichokes. I mean, just keep going on and on. About 30 other crops, it doesn't make sense financially to be using pressurized drip because it's too expensive to filter the water. You need very pure, clean water to be used in pressurized drip because it, it clogs very easily. And you need to propel the water. With end drip, you can use dirty, muddy water as your, as your water source. You can use borehole water, you can use canal water, it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't need to be super clean. And, and you also are in a situation where you have a, um, uh, uh, where you have no additional energy costs. So farmers of commodity crops have this wonderful new tool that they have available to them. Policymakers and governments are worried about running out of water, so NDRIP is a winner for them. And what does the farmer get out of this? The farmer saves half of the water on average, sometimes 40%, sometimes as much as 70%, but on average, 50%. The farmer's yield is increased from anywhere from 10 to 40%. Amazing, so the farm has more income. The farmer uses half as much fertilizer because this is precision irrigation. And we've learned recently that carbon emissions are cut by 50% and methane emissions on rice and alfalfa, which are very big generators of methane, Methane is generated generated uh, 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 generated by those crops are reduced by between 80 and 95 percent using NTRIP. So this is a totally virtuous circle. Save water, increase yield, more food for a hungry world, more money for the farmer, less fertilizer, uh, less groundwater contamination as a result, less methane, less carbon. It's a win all the way around. And so this is a this is why you, you can hear the excitement of my voice. This is why I've decided to get behind this technology. I was about to write a, a fourth book when I learned about this technology and I said, I'm gonna take a pause from writing the book and become an evangelist for this company and this technology because this is the solution that we need. If we can be cutting water use by approximately half in all 600 acres where water is being used uh, recklessly, then we can completely transform the world and to add the benefit of the methane reduction and the carbon reduction and so forth. Wow. So for our listeners, Seth, can you, I mean, today, uh, as we're sitting here talking, where is NDRIP already in use? It's in 10, it's in about 10 countries around the world right now. And, um, and it's very deeply penetrated in Arizona, uh, throughout Arizona, thousands and thousands of acres throughout all of Arizona. Um, it's also, uh, to some degree in pecan, oh, also tree, tree orchards and such. Uh, we, so we're doing pecans in New Mexico, where we have a, we're installing now in parts of Utah, in parts of Colorado. Uh, uh, we're very, very significantly now entering Nebraska. And because of why Nebraska? Nebraska is all the Ogallala Aquifer. It's all groundwater. Farmers now don't have to pump as much water. And so the energy costs drop by 70% by virtue of switching over to NDRIP because you, you're not just taking half as much water, but you have to go deeper in the water table to get to that second half. So farmers are saving about 70% of their energy costs, which is a very large part of, of farming. We've been told by some farmers that until they found NDRIP, they were considering 
um, dropping out of uh, following some of their fields because the energy costs. And now that they can do this in an economical way, they've they're now growing fields. Uh, their fields are still uh, uh, fertile again. So this is this is uh, very exciting. We're also, by the way, we're also entering Florida. We have uh, several pilots in Florida, and the reason why I'm excited about Florida is that there the issue is not so much water, although water is not irrelevant, and there the issue is not so much energy. There the issue is the contamination of Lake Okeechobee and also of the Everglades. And where the why are they contaminated? They're contaminated because of the sugarcane crops that are over-fertilized. There's a huge amount of runoff of the nitrogen, the phosphate, the potassium. It gets into the Everglades and it's choking off the plants. And every time, every time you see an algal bloom, you know that you're in a district or an area which has had runoff, either uh, rare, rarely a, a, a sewage plant has had a leak, but more likely what has happened is that there's runoff from agricultural uh, agricultural fertilizer, and that nitrogen fuels the algal blooms. This eliminates that completely. This will save Lake Okeechobee, and this will completely transform the the future of of the Everglades. And of this, I I feel with great certainty. And so that's why I said a year or two from now, when all these pilots start coming in, as we know they will and they are coming in positively, it's great. The company is also doing business in Italy, in Mexico, in Australia, in India, and about 10 countries around the world, Spain, and so forth. Chris, you have some uh, additional questions there? Well, no, I was just, uh, I, I was curious as the fact since the technology was uh, uh, Israeli, as I think you said, Seth, is it in use? Uh, in Israel as well. Well, it is in part, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, in Israel, there is no flood irrigation. The last time I had flood irrigation in Israel was 1970 or 71. They, it was outlawed because they wanted to be water smart, and they insisted that farmers use other technologies to to not waste water. Uh, as as I point out in my book, "Let There Be Water," Israel has almost always been ahead of the global curve on water. Uh, and so they were just smart about it. They said, you know, flooding is great and, and, and citrus orchards are great, but this is dopey and we're going to hurt ourselves. So let's get rid of let's get rid of this uh, flood irrigation. So in that regard, it, they're, they're not using it other than experimental fields to test uh, Endrip. Where they are using it is, is another invention of the company, which is the most fine tuned uh, agricultural sensor in the world. It's called the Endrip Connect. And this, you don't have to do it with the Endrip irrigation. You can do it with any kind of irrigation. And what it does is, it's a fascinating technology. Um, it's a textile that is about a, a one yard long. It's a geotextile, specially invented textile. It's buried about a four, 14 inches underneath the ground in the field, in three parts in a field, about 40 acre field. And it's buried before the season begins with the intention of the roots growing into the geotextile. The textile is connected to a transmitter. The transmitter is connected above the field to an antenna. The antenna goes to the cloud. And in milliseconds, in fractions of seconds, information is going from those geotextiles up to, up to a supercomputer in Israel that is analyzing field by field. And this is thousands and thousands and thousands of fields all around the world. Um, uh, analyzing for them do they need more water or less water? Do they need more fertilizer or less fertilizer? And it sends them a real-time, uh, real-time, three times a day, um, satellite photograph that shows them by by subdivision, by subdivision, by subdivision, by the smallest subdivision of a few meters, even a few yards, even. It shows them where in the field they could benefit from a little bit more uh, irrigation or a little bit more fertilizer. So it's a really a wonderful tool to saving water and saving fertilizer. 
but it's even more amazing because what it does is if you're a contract farmer and you have to deliver whatever it is, tomatoes or lettuce or, or whatever the crop is on a specific date, as frequently happens with contract farmers, you can program this sensor six weeks out and say, I have to deliver the crop on this date. Guide me to either maximize the total yield, minimize the amount of water, or minimize the amount of fertilizer. So if you're in a water scarce place, you can choose to get a certain yield, but minimize your water use. If you're trying to preserve your groundwater and not uh, and not contaminate it, you can reduce the amount of fertilizer. Or if you're just simply trying to get the biggest yield possible, you program it for that and it will tell you how to get to the largest yield possible uh, six weeks out from, from delivery. I think it's just an absolutely remarkable tool for farmers to enhance their farm incomes while also watching out for expensive inputs like fertilizer and and precious inputs like water. That a fascinating I, I technology. Uh, it really is. And by the way, sorry, both, both, both of these were invented by the same guy. I, I should take yeah. a moment to pay tribute to him. His name is Professor Uri Shani. Uh, and Professor Shani is, uh, is one of these, I don't know, I mean, <laughs> somebody should write his biography. It's not gonna be me, but somebody should write his biography. Um, he started life living on a, on a, a collective farm. He grew up around scientists and farmers. Uh, he assumed he'd be a scientist and a farmer. Um, and he, as, as like everyone in Israel, he did military service. Uh, he volunteered for a very elite commando unit. Uh, and lo and behold, who was his bunkmate? Uh, the current prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really kind of like it's a small country. So, but even so, it's like kind of amazing. It's like that was his, that was the guy with the bunk above him. Um, the, their commander was a guy who was a prior prime minister, a guy named Ehud Barak. So it's really, it was a s- small unit, but but obviously very very talented uh, people. And um, and Uri Shani, um, when he got out of the military, um, went to university, uh, showed his incredible gift for science, professor of soil sciences, they call it their soil physics. And, uh, and Uri Shani uh, builds a great reputation throughout the country. And then he's invited to become the first head of the Israel Water Authority. And he agrees to do it only if he can shake up the whole country's water perspectives. And Israel's water miracle of today, I mean, it goes back a ways, but the really great stuff, the desalination and the and the high use of technology and the market forces and all the other pieces that make Israel the great water center that it is, really comes from his tenure as head of the Israel Water Authority. And then he finishes there. He, he you know, does some consulting for this. That. The next thing is back at the university. And as he tells the story, he was plagued by the fact that pressurized drip irrigation had only achieved a 3% global market penetration. And he didn't understand, he understood why, because it was expensive, but he was frustrated by that. And he was also frustrated by the fact that flood irrigation still had an 85% market share. So he set out, set, a simple thing, he sets out <laughs> to change, to do, to, he sets out to, up, to up, upset a technology that's been in place for 4,000, 5,000 years. You know, just a nice, easy, easy afternoon thought. And the problem was the dripper and the pressurized dripper was such that he knew he couldn't use that dripper and the dripper would have to be completely reinvented. And as he tells the story, he'd been muddling this for, for a long time and he kept experimenting with one dripper after another. And then he was out, he's a big hiker. He was out on a hike and he says it came to him like as a thunderbolt. All of a sudden he realized that he was thinking about it the wrong way and if he could simply reinvent the dripper from scratch, it would change everything. 
And he rushed back to uh, his lab and began creating this prototype. And of course, it, it, you know, it's like it's like, you know, I sometimes say it's like uh, lots of people saw apples fall before Isaac Newton. <laughs> but but Newton saw the apple fall and he invents Newtonian physics. Well, Uri Shani, you know, uh, knew what everyone has known for thousands of years, which is that flood irrigation is a horrifically wasteful form of irrigation. And he set out to change it. And God bless the man he did. Does Israel or any places that you've been to, do you, do you think that the need for water storage needs to be, at least here in the United States, we're dramatically pouring water down the sewers or going back into the ocean. Uh, water storage is going to be something that everybody needs to understand. How do you, how do you view that in the places hey, you've been? Yeah, I got a couple, uh, obviously I've traveled a lot on, and I've seen a lot. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Thanks for asking me about that. Um, first, first of all, I think that it's hard to guess the right amount of storage capacity you need to build. And it rains a lot one year and it doesn't rain much the next year. I mean, again, I don't know when this will be aired, but the today is a massive rainstorm in California, right? And you could never have imagined building a capacity to store all the water that's pouring from the sky right now. And about a year ago or two years ago, there was a dearth of water and, and you would have had overcapacity if you had storage. So I believe that it makes sense to have water storage capacity. I think even more so it makes sense to have systems to funnel water back into aquifers where you can, to have a, sort of a catch and release program where you can catch the rainwater and dribble it, uh, percolate it, I think is the technical term, but dribble it back into the aquifer to raise the water table as much as you possibly can without utter, utter saturation. I think that that's the, but, but if I can, if I can jump into what I really think, there's two parts to your question, the way you worded it, and I don't know if that was intentional, is that there's the rain part and the snow part is on one side, but there's the wastewater part is the other half of it. And what, what aggravates me is that in dry places, there's just inadequate amount of, of uh, treated wastewater that is treated to the ultra high pure level where it could be reintroduced either into or agriculture or into drinking water or into use for industrial purposes or whatever. I mean, that that's that's what agitates me about this. You know, again, back to the Israel example, Israel in 19, I write about this and let there be water in 1952. Israel was only a four year old country and they were bankrupt. I mean, they were trying to absorb all the immigrants that were coming in from Arab countries and from and from Europe. And they were just finished a, a grievous war that you know killed one percent of their national population. And um, they, they were going through state building. It was not an easy time. But in 1952, they already started thinking about what can we do for that day? We're going to be running out of water. And the conclusion that the first conclusion they come to is we have to capture all of our sewage and develop systems for making reuse of that water so that we don't have to overtax our drinking water supply. And so and so today, Israel, by far and away, leads the world. In, in captured water and in reuse of that water with 85 or so percent of all the of 95 or more than percent of the country's water is captured and treated. But about 85 percent of that water is then reused. And because they have a sense that psychologically people won't want to drink that water, although there's no reason they couldn't, um, they treat it to this ultra high pure level. They put it into a parallel national water infrastructure system. And then from there, they um, and then from there they um, use that that uh, water for agriculture exclusively, and it's uh, it's a very it's a, again I tell the, the, that story in detail and let there be water. But 
but it's um, it's really it really uh, the benefit of science and policy and technology coming together for the benefit of the country. And so if, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that even in the midst of the hottest summer, you, you, people feel like they're in London or New York or some other humid place with an abundant water supply because they've taken all these wonderful techniques and that and desalination and, and other things to make sure that, that, that the water is there when they need it uh, and, and available to them. I, I, just real quick, I remember the first interview that we had a couple of years back when you told us, I might be using the wrong word here, how, excuse me, how those companies mine the wastewater for paper, uh, take yeah. the chick, chicken fat out of the things and use it for oil and things of that sort. And and I'll never I'll never forget that. And, and I I'm just amazed at that. Uh, Chris, I don't want to. I want you to jump in. I'm yeah, just, just so your audience will know, just so your audience will know what we're talking about is that wastewater is just filled with resources, uh, metals, valuable metals precious metals uh, that's filled with uh, material that can be recycled and reused, like uh, not to be gross in any way, but toilet paper is designed and invented to dissolve. But it doesn't truly dissolve. The cellulosic fiber that makes up toilet paper remains invisibly, but it remains in the wastewater. And so and so, uh, the, what we discussed was this very interesting company that found this method of, of filtering out the cellulosic material, the, the discarded toilet paper. Obviously, it had been cleaned, capturing it, drying it, and using it as a heat source. So it's, uh, it, but it's, again, it's an example of the Israeli mindset around water of like, how can we rethink the water equation in a way that's never been done before? I think it's very clever. And the chicken fat, you know, they, they have a lot of <laughs> chick, chicken dinners on fr Sabbath on Friday night. So, so there's a lot of chickens that are cleaned, a lot of chicken fats. So they skim that fat. And they use that as an industrial solvent. It's really, it's really quite uh, something. It's absolutely uh, fine, Rob. So, um, Seth, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask the question a little bit um, about, you know, where you see the. Uh, let me, let me go back. Maybe we can look at that CNN interview that you did uh, a while ago, and uh, maybe give us a comment about what was uh, captured in in that interview. I did watch it, so did uh, so did Rob. You talked about lots of different things, water offsets, and 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 all that sort of stuff. I'm kind of pointing us towards maybe a future view, and you know where you where you kind of see things going, Seth. Yeah, very much. Thanks so much for uh, thanks for asking about that. Uh, so. I am a great believer. I, I've never been a fan of carbon offsets because I think it's a it's an inaccurate science, and I think that people buy carbon credits and they don't really know exactly what they're buying. So, I, so I, I have to start by saying I've always been a bit of a skeptic about carbon credits. Um, I'm not antagonistic to trying to reduce carbon or doing carbon offsets. I think it's a wonderful idea, but I'm skeptical about the idea of buying carbon credits. However, imagine you didn't have to be skeptical. Imagine you could measure it and be sure that you're buying what you think you're buying. And this brings us back to NDRIP again, because it turns out that there's lots of very heavy water users. Think of data centers that are water cooled. Think of, of uh, different manufacturing processes that require vast amounts of water. And many of the times those companies are based in water scarce watersheds or stressed watersheds. So what we are offering now, we'll be, we'll be sharing this in a more profound way in a, in a couple of weeks and then accelerating the next couple of months. We've developed this idea that high water users can buy water offsets 
in their same watershed. How do they do that? They contract with NDRIP, and we know this is not a theory anymore because we have this in process now. They buy, they buy, uh, they buy from, they pay us to find farmers who would like to convert their fields from flood irrigation to NDRIP. And because we already know, depending upon what the crop is, we know what the water saving is going to be, but that's not enough. We then put measurement tools, piezometers and other measurement tools on the fields. So we know precisely how much water is being utilized by acre down to the gallon. And we put it side by side with a control field so we know exactly how much is otherwise was being used, same temperature, same wind, same, same soil conditions, same crop. And therefore we're able to report with incredible accuracy how much water has been utilized, how much water has been saved. And then the, the company that is trying to be a good, good community member um, is able to say, yes, I've used eight, you know, 80 million gallons of water this, this month, this year, this week, whatever, but I have offset 100 million gallons or 80 million at a minimum, but I've offset everything I'm using, or in many cases, what they're doing is they're offsetting between 125% and 200% of their actual water use because it's relatively inexpensive to install and they can buy these water, this sense, this water credit, if you will, uh, it's not, maybe not a formal term, but they can they can in, enhance the amount of water that they are uh, taking instead of taking out of the watershed. They're actually adding water into the watershed because this is water that otherwise is being used by farmers. And so it's a, it's a really it's a win all all around. Farmers get upgraded farms with better um, with better um, uh, uh, technology, and and likewise um, uh, you have um, the situation where. Um, uh, you know, likewise, a situation where the the users don't have to face the PR problem of saying to the community that they have to, uh, you know, they have to be, stop using the water or otherwise. So, so, so the, the the bottom line of all this is this creates a great opportunity for uh, for government, for corporations, for farmers to all come together in the best interests of their communities. So it's an ex- it's it's an exciting new uh, attempt to widen the envelope. And here, in a sense, what it means to say is that the farmer is not the customer for the product, the technology. The farmer is the vehicle for saving water, whether for the government's use or for a, a technology center with a data center or a manufacturer or otherwise. So it's a, it's, a, it's all a very interesting idea that, yes, of course, sometimes farmers are the customer because they want to increase their yields but or save water, but sometimes also the farmer is agnostic to all of that, but is very happy to have the technology installed and and other parties, again, governments were worried about water scarcity or corporations that are worried about the the image of them using up community water uh, get get uh, into a better place. I know here in the United States, there's rebates that are offered to the farming industry uh, for water conservation and water use efficiency. And we also do that for simple residential people as well. The problem that I see with that, you, I, I, I firmly believe that if more rebates were given to the agricultural world, because they're the biggest users of the water, that there'd be a, a whole lot more water savings on it. Do you see that it, as well here? And, and do they have the same kind of rebates in other countries? Uh, it depends upon the country. In the US, we've actually benefited very greatly, and that's just water, also energy. In Nebraska, where I mentioned earlier that they have to pump the groundwater out, 
There's uh, the USDA Department of Agriculture has something called the REAP grants, and that's it, it provides 50 to 75 percent of the cost of the energy if a farmer uh, uses less energy. So um, so and, and so NDRIP has been a beneficiary of of REAP grants and other grants. It depends upon the country. There are some countries where there's massive subsidies. India is a country with massive subsidies for approved technologies. Um, and some countries like Australia, where subsidies are very, very rare. So it, it differs from place to place. My, my suspicion is though, uh, Rob, is that as time will go by, everybody will figure out some sort of normed common behavior because everybody has to figure out a way to save water. Great. Chris, I'll let you follow up with any uh, final questions because we're coming up to our uh, NBC news break that we have to turn it over to them. They're, the bigger, they're a little bigger than we are. So <laughs> we appreciate them. Yeah, they are. I guess, uh, Seth, you know, in, in, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking of the actual distribution device itself in, in, in N-Drip versus, you know, drip tape or, or, or drip hose within line emitters. Maybe in just, um, you know, kind of a 90 second brief deal, you know, if you can, how does, what is the point source? What is the actual outlet for, uh, for N-Drip? The, 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 the drip tape is almost identical in outside appearance. It's a, a black plastic of different thicknesses depending upon the crop and how long it's being put in the field for. But what's different is that unlike pressurized drip, unlike pressurized drip where you have a, a, the emitter that was invented about 65, 70 years ago, which clogs if, it's, if there's particles of sand in there and which needs a lot of energy to propel it through the, that dripper, uh, this is a different dripper. So that the, the, the drip tape looks identical the way it is bound into the drip tape is not un, is not utterly dissimilar. And every about 20, 20, depending on the crop, every 20, 22 inches or so, there's a little one of these emitters. But um, so for the for the untrained eye, I was just looking at a field, you might not notice a difference. But there's um, but what's the magic is the is that little tiny uh, dripper that's inside of the tape uh, and millions of them per field. I mean, but they're, but they're uh, not seeing. The other thing I suppose that's great about this, because it was invented at a time when we were thinking about recyclability, whereas old pressurized drip wasn't, it didn't exist then. Um, we are number two plastic in everything we do. So our dripper and our dripper lines are all of the same kind of plastic, easily recyclable um, and built, built to be that way. Uh, instead of otherwise with classic, classic pressurized drip, it's different plastic. So you have to somehow you'd have to cut open all the all the dripper lines. You have to take all the emitters out. It's it, it's a it's a bit of a, a it's a bit of a logistical problem to get that done. Wow. Well, Seth, I could talk to you for days. I love listening to your experience on what you do, and, and uh, I, I certainly want an update next year or a couple of months next year i want to keep, keep coming back because we love talking to you and you you have a great world insight of what's happening in, in, to water and we do appreciate that well i love being on your show and thanks so much for having me back uh, uh, i look forward to our next time together great thanks a lot That was pretty awesome, wasn't it, Chris? Oh, I'll tell you, man. Uh, Rob, there's no doubt you know uh, precisely how I feel about that. You know, Seth has been on the show before. It was, it was several years ago. And before yep. that, I didn't really follow what he was doing. But um, in the years since, uh, I have. Very exciting. I guess two things that stood out for me is the water offsets, the water credits, although I don't know if that's the correct term to use. But 
uh, that, and then his description of how far we're, you know, how far we're, we're behind the curve in the, in the U.S. here. I mean, those are those are poignant issues to bring up. Yeah, and you know, he personally travels. I mean, he gave up a great business. He made made tons of money selling it, but but he, what he what he put his life towards is pretty remarkable. All the things that he's been in, and he's a very honest person. He tells it like it is, and. He's been going back and forth to different, all over Europe and, and Middle East and all over the country. And uh, he, knows, he knows where to go and he knows what to do. So we appreciate him and uh, he's a good friend of the show. And yes, he'll be on again in uh, a couple months. We'll get some more updates. And probably, I know he's working on another book, so we certainly want to hear about that. Anything else new, Chris, for the last minute or so? <laughs> no, not really. I just want to encourage the listeners to tune in next week. I mean, another great show coming up, right? We've got a person from Salt Lake City Department of Public, Public Utilities coming on the show. Someone that we've been trying to recruit on the show for a while, Rob. You know that as well as I do. Uh, and, absolutely. Uh, yep, and that is that is going to be an absolutely great show, uh, just like this one was today. Uh, so yep. encourage people to tune in, our listeners to tune in next week as well. Yep. And um, we got some really good people coming on. Uh, people, former uh, Undersecretary of, of Defense and State. And we're going to talk about cyber crimes and things. And we've got some people with great knowledge on it. So, anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening in today. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. And most important thing that Chris and I always tell everybody at the end of the show, please help. Please help. Keep our planet blue. Yeah, if you like, if you like green, you got to have blue. So have a good weekend and stay safe. Talk to you. NBC News on KCAA Loma Linda, sponsored by Teamsters Local 1932, protecting the future of working families, teamsters1932.org.